Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good afternoon to Xiaoxie Wang, who is a researcher at the International Institute for Environment and Development in London, and joins us today to talk about a lot of the work she's been doing with regards to sustainable development and the Chinese. Now, that may seem a little oxymoronic, and we're going to get into the details of that. But Xiaoxie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, two topics that Xiaoxie has been writing about that caught her attention that we're going to kind of talk about separately, but put it all under the umbrella of what we're going to, for lack of a better word, call sustainable sustainable development. First and foremost, uh, back in, in March, I th- no, in February, uh, IIED, which is the group that, uh, again, that's the International Institute for Environment and Development in London, uh, sponsored a tour of Chinese journalists in Africa and who kind of got their first introduction to the ivory issue and to reporting on Africa. We're going to touch on that a little bit. We're really going to spend the most of the, the show, though, focusing on the timber and logging issue. And that's a story that even came up uh, just this week, in fact, with reports that uh, Chinese logging is clear-cutting vast parts of Guinea-Bissau. We've heard about Chinese logging uh, issues in uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Republic of Congo, Botswana. So logging is going to be a very big issue to talk about, uh, and we're very happy that Xiao Xue is here. Xiao Xue, let's first talk about the uh, this journalist project. Now, again, you're not an expert necessarily in media and Chinese reporting, but I think one of the ideas from reading your post here was to try and get Chinese journalists to see Africa from a different point of view. Tell us a little bit about what the objective was and how it went. To, to take a step back, perhaps, so IIED, my organization, we are a policy research think tank, and that means that we do a lot of research on um, sustainable development issues in Africa and other regions, and especially China's role in Africa. So through our past work on research and policy engagement, we found a lack of engagement from the general public on the Chinese side. And we were thinking, okay, we are talking to the researchers, we are talking to the policymakers, but how can we really raise awareness among the Chinese public about what's happening in Africa? Um, and I guess that's really where we came from. And we had great partners in China. Uh, they're, they're internews and in the media. They're interested in these media exchange immersion. So then we talked with them. We decided to sponsor some young Chinese environmental journalists who've never been to Africa to go over and report on sustainable development issues. Now, I think... I think they've already had an environmental focus because they're environmental journalists back at home in China. Um, But Africa was an entirely new situation for them. And I think that was the key, you know, to have Chinese environmentalists to report on environmental issues in Africa and bring it back to China. And because they're written from a Chinese perspective, we didn't really want to shape their opinions in any way. We wanted them to be the Chinese they were um, and to report from their own eyes, write them in Chinese and speak to the Chinese audience that they wanted to speak to. And I think that turned out great. We didn't really know what was going to come out of it, um, but they ended up in writing quite a few stories and a CCD 
TV documentary on ivory. So ivory was only one of the topics that they pursued. A few other things, civil society organizations um, and some other timber trade. Yeah, maybe. Did that answer your question? Absolutely. Go ahead, Kobus. Um, you know, the, this this project is really interesting for me, um, and I was wondering um, what 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 you guys learned from from you know from going through this process. Like like um, you know for for subsequent projects and reporting projects, um, which which aspects of of the China Africa environmental relations do you feel um, should be emphasized, and uh, you know kind of what what did you take from the from the whole process for the future? Yeah, well, okay, what aspects should be emphasized? Um, I don't know if the journalists would agree with me. I, I, I'm more of a, you know, observer from the outside. Um, knowing how things are on the ground in Africa based on some of my field work and IID's research, I think in the future it would be even greater if the journalists could do independent investigative journalism I think this time they did to some extent, but it was their, their first time on the continent. Well, we shouldn't say just Africa. There was only in Kenya. And um, yeah, it would be, I think probably there were concerns with security issues, understandably. So it would be nice to have long-term stationed Chinese, either journalists or people who are interested in writing about the continent and the issues. That's one. But the other issue, the other side is to specifically follow up on these Chinese projects um, happening all across the continent and to go talk to the Chinese um, operators or investors or managers of those projects. But being journalists, I think they're often good in English also, or sometimes in French. So they could try to also talk to the communities around the projects. They could have this more of an independent third eye, um, in a way due diligence almost um, type of work. So those are the reflections I've had. I think it's a really good start. But another point would be, I was really surprised actually to see how plugged in some Chinese journalists or um, yeah, some Chinese media people are on this topic. So there were a few other journalists who attended this roundtable discussion we had who weren't part of our supported trip. But one of them had gone to Africa already, had reported on Chinese projects in Zambia. He's done exactly what I described earlier, talked to community members, talked to the Chinese managers on his own, has written on environmental aspects of Chinese investment. And through him, I also got to know quite a lot of other Chinese people who might not be necessarily journalists, but definitely not affiliated with the government, may not be affiliated with international NGOs, maybe more, much more independent and probably affiliated with some kind of Chinese organizations, either research or, or some kind of NGO mm -hmm. style. Um, yeah, so, so that was an encouraging sign. I didn't know that that existed. Yeah. Well, there's, there's two big challenges facing Chinese, well, the Chinese media and Chinese news in particular. One is, and, and you brought this up in your blog post, which I thought was interesting, is there's a very Chinese-centric view of the world. And, and this is not unique to, to China by any means, but if you've spent time uh, in China looking at the media, 90-plus uh, percent of the content is focused on domestic issues. Uh, and that's yeah. not dissimilar at all to the United States. 
in many ways. And in many countries, news is local. And so people have this very, very narrow view of the world. Uh, and and China is no different in that respect. And you you kind of talked about this in terms of doing away with what you called a China-centric perspective. Mm-hmm. The second challenge that I see is the fact is the quality and the quantity of Chinese journalists in Africa is is, is abysmal. So the journalists who are there oftentimes are you know assigned by Xinhua, which is the official New yeah. China News yeah. Agency. It, to call them journalists is really a questionable thing in many cases. A lot of them are attached to the embassy. Um, they sit, they watch TV, they rehash, you know, you know what they see on TV, and that goes out as a newswire. Um, it, a lot of it is because it's very heavily controlled uh, by the party at back in Beijing. The type of coverage is. You know the you know the prime minister you know you know or the the ambassador to Zambia you know expresses his endearing support for you know China cooperation with Zambia and you know ten more years of future prosperity for both countries blah 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 it's not really journalism so to see this environmental journalism this movement in China that is now actually becoming very very vibrant in terms of environmental media is exciting to see that there might be some ways of bringing that into Africa as well. So that is uh, that is optimistic. That creates a little bit of optimism for me uh, to see. Hopefully, that we can see some yeah. of that energy come. Yeah, definitely. Uh, if I may jump in there, I, I think I think you're definitely right. Um, I wouldn't dismiss the Xinhua reporters as non-journalists. I mean, they do different kind of journalism, and I think. I going, you know, being back in China when you are trained as a journalist. Uh, granted, I don't know much about it. I, I would imagine there's a certain way of training that would make them certain type of journalists. Um, but I think, as you say, what we we would like to see more would be Chinese um, journalists who can go out there independently, do investigative reporting and do environmental reporting. Um, I think that would be very useful and write in Chinese from their perspective. At IIED, we just kick-started our large three-year project on China-Africa forest governance. Um, as part of this, we are hoping to sponsor or to promote more journalism exchange um, to influence Chinese Chinese societal opinion or to raise awareness of these issues in China. So definitely we are looking to continue in that. And I would would love to get in touch with anybody who's interested in these topics. Um, And so that was on the environmental journalism part. Uh, To get back on the China-centric approach, I'm glad you picked it up. Um, Yeah, that that was the feeling that I used to get quite a lot I think more so when, especially when you are reading about China-Africa economic news, because China is sending so much, um, say, providing aid or grants or concessional loans to these African countries, somewhat the tone that I feel it's portraying China as the big brother, economics barrier brother who is helping out the African continent that is um, that needs help. And maybe it's probably part of it that economic exchange is true. But um, I think when we are talking about sustainable development lessons or issues, how to solve some of these problems associated with Chinese projects or just in general with even within African countries, domestic environmental governance, I don't think that kind of perspective would make sense. Um, And I think it's much more helpful to step back 
and say, okay, China and African, both countries are African countries, both sides are equal, and what can we do there? And that was really refreshing to hear some, something along those lines from those journalists. It's very interesting that you bring up a point here. And Kobus, I wanted to get your take on what Xiaoxia just said about this idea that, you know, there's a paternalism creeping into the Chinese relationship. You know, China goes out of its way to talk about how we are also a poor developing country. We are a country of equals. We were the victims of colonialism. But yet, when you listen to Xiaoxia talk about the kind of perceptions of the media that it's becoming this big brother, we're helping send a lot of money, that echoes the paternalism that the West has often had, particularly in the media, with regards to coverage of Africa. Do you kind of see a, a, a trend kind of evolving there that as China invests deeper, the public may kind of, you know, follow the Western lead and, and develop this, this arrogance? Yes, but I don't think it's necessarily that new. Like, if you look at, at China-Africa discourse um, from the Mao era, that logic was already there. You know, kind of there was this this, this idea of of being an older brother and leading in this in that case revolution. Um, you know, um, so it's just this this weird mix of being both an equal and a leader. Um, you know, kind of and and also there, there's been a long tendency of China to try and position itself as the leader of the developing world during the Cold War. And obviously, you know, kind of since then. So I think I think it it, it does fit into a, a, an older logic that is happening. But of course, the fact that that China is so objectively successful, you know, kind of, and so you know, kind of, its development is going so well. Um, I think that that probably strengthens strengthens that tendency. Yeah, very interesting. Let's now turn our attention to timber here a little bit because that's kind of where your your specialty is. And, and there's this. Again, I'm struggling with the concept of of sustainable development and and China. You know, those are two things that don't necessarily go together very well right now. Uh, Ten of the world's top 20 most polluted lakes are in China. Obviously, the air quality issues in in all major Chinese cities. Uh, Environmental degradation and pollution in China is rampant. Uh, Now, the flip side of that, and this is where I want to bring you in when it comes to forestry issues, is that, you know, people in the West on their way to pick up their Ikea sofa, will sit there and rail about, you know, the Chinese are just messing everything up. They're clear-cutting forests in, in, in Guinea-Bissau and in, in Congo. They're polluting their own uh, country back home. And yet people in America and Europe love going to Carrefour and to Walmart and to, to Ikea to buy all of those products that are made in China with timber and wood products from all over the world. So the cost is being borne by Africa and by China. The benefits are being borne by consumers in the West or in the industrialized world that want and insist on low prices. Talk to us a little bit about that relationship in the supply chain and what role and responsibility does China have or are they really the victims here of a supply chain that just pressures them for low cost, high turnaround, high volume types of products? Yeah. Hmm. Well, good. Very good question. Um, um, okay. Where can I start? First of all, I think we need to differentiate between timber that's going to China for export. So basically, China processes and export to EU to the EU or US, and, and um, timber going to China for domestic consumption. Now, there, there are some figures that I can't think of from the top of my head, but it used to be that the former, the export market processing was larger than the domestic. Now, the domestic market is picking up. And, and 
I guess the key here is to understand what types of logging is associated with the export processing industry and what types are associated with the domestic market. Because for the, I say this because it's important to make the distinction because the export market actually has started picking up on these problematic timber that comes from either China or Vietnam, who is also getting um, becoming a much bigger processing hub. So, such as I, I think you maybe you've heard about, say, the U.S. Lacey Act that's. Uh, banning import of illegal products, timber products, or Australia's Illegal Timber Act, I think. I don't remember the exact name. And the EU, um, from almost 10 years ago or so, it has been talking about implementing some kind of legislation. And just last year, it started putting in this EU timber, um, EU timber regulation, which puts the responsibility on... European timber importing companies to ensure that they've they are sourcing uh, sustainably and legally from whatever country, and they need to do the due diligence. So these are the governmental um, efforts that have been done in the consum- consuming um, countries. And I do agree with you. There is still this pressure of low low price products and the consumers in the rich world definitely bear the responsibility to push for further sustainable timber products. But I think there have been progress in that side. And now what I do want to talk about, though, is about the timber going to China for domestic consumption. And here I think we can talk about some interesting types. Have you heard of rosewood before? Of course. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And a lot of those high profile um, reports that you would read about um, illegal logging by Chinese demands or Chinese traders, um, all of that, most, a lot of them are talking about rosewood species, say Madagascar and some, some in um, Southeast Asia. So what do what can I think if we are talking about the role of China in ensuring sustainable timber products we have to look at this side of the story and say okay what can we change and what can we do on that supply chain um on that part I've done some research back in Cameroon doing some field work and also we work closely with some other NGOs. Do you want me to talk further, elaborate on that, or do you want to ask some specific questions? On let's let's go topic? a little bit more specific. Kobus, you had a couple of questions. Um, one of the one of the difficult issues I think to deal with in terms of of um, arranging the or like you know kind of managing the the, the timber trade in Africa is that frequently um, governance by African governments are so is so weak, um, you know due to a lack of of staff frequently and yeah. like a lack of funds, but also due to corruption. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was wondering if um, if you see any kind of ways for for that side of it to be improved. We've in in recent that we've discussed before, we've had um, 
situations, for example, in the Congo, where um, where some of the Africa, the, some of the Chinese contractors were under the impression that they actually had legit logging yeah. licenses, but they actually turned out to have, you know, kind of which actually got, you know, kind of um, from people who actually uh, got them got those licenses illegally. So, you know, yeah. frequently there isn't necessarily a situation where the where the, the loggers themselves realize that they're logging illegally. Is there a way that yeah. you that you see where where that could actually be that situation could be helped? Um, you, you bring up an excellent point there, and that's that's really something that I also want to debunk the myth um, about China's role in illegal logging is that you know these African forest governance situation is so not transparent and fo- filled with corruption that I think it would be difficult for for even the best Chinese companies to try to comply. And in other words, I'm saying the responsibilities rests on both sides. And yes, to answer your question on the African forest governance side, um, there there are there have been many many international agency led uh, initiatives to push for forest reform, forest legislation. Um, I think each time they've made probably some progress in clarifying forest tenure and tr- making um, ensuring, say, legality of timber or installing some kind of tracking system of supply chains within these African countries. But but as you say, yeah, as it stands now, even if you just talk to the African traders or loggers, sometimes they themselves are also in a, put in dilemma in this in this situation. So what can we do? What can the Chinese government do? That that's a question we we keep asking ourselves. Um, if I may bring in an interesting example from Cameroon when I did my field work there, it's it's about this a species similar to rosewood. Um, and we were, I was there, and in Cameroon, everybody was telling me that Chinese are rummaging the forest for this specific species, bubinga. And I wanted to find out what exactly were they doing. So I went da- deep down into the forest, southern forest, where these trees are harvested. And basically, what I find is many poor rural communities. Um, they're local loggers with chainsaw millers and uh, chainsaw. And they were just logging these these trees away and I, and selling to Chinese. And I would ask them, why are you doing this? You know, the tree, it's already sustainable. Yes, the Chinese um, give you very high prices, but what's the motivation? They say, well, this is in a way our banks, our safety net. Um, I when my sister got sick to pay for the hospital, I'm logging, I'm chopping this tree down so that I could pay. If, if I want to send my kids to school, I'm chopping this tree down. And they were so thankful in a way. I mean, I don't want to give the wrong image, but at least in a personal interaction, quite many of them were saying, oh, we want the Chinese more here because they pay us in cash, they pay us on time, um, all of that. And while they are saying that 
you know, the government does zoning and then the government takes away some of the forests so that they'll give away to the large companies. The large companies, uh, by law, are required to pay us some, some benefit sharing money, but we don't receive that because of corruption. So what can we do? We should chop away the trees before the land or the forest is taken away to benefit some exports large companies and when it's a very complex and also therefore they were cutting it basically illegally but in their eyes they what they were doing were legitimate and yeah. these are you know local local very poor villagers and i'm not in in that kind of situation where do you think the problem lies or how can we change right. that uh, yeah the conclusion i came back to was that the african government forest governance side they need to they need to really integrate these local small-scale loggers into the supply chain of more lucrative timber trade and that's not being done as much yeah. right now well listening to both of your comments mm. uh, i'm going to kind of you know come to the end of the show thoroughly depressed um, <laughs> depressed in the sense that, you know, Xiaoxie, what you're saying is, yes, it's the short-term type of thinking. And it's absolutely understandable from the point of view of the villagers and the people who are cutting down the, these trees in order to pay the next bill and to avoid having the benefits of the trees being taken by somebody else. It's the Chinese who aren't really thinking anything other than, I just need to secure the raw material as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. The second part of this, which is, to me, the most truly scary and most depressing thing is, and I saw this in the DRC when I lived there, is the mechanization of it all. You know, when, when okay. the Europeans colonized Africa, uh, it wasn't mechanized anywhere near what it is today. But they can clear-cut forests in, you know, a microsecond compared to what was being done in the past. And again, yeah. what I think worries me the most is the lack of cultural context for CSR and sustainable development that exists within the Chinese uh, kind of psyche. Mm -hmm. Moreover, in China itself, you know, the environment is not something that's necessarily, you know, the, the way that thinking often is, is that the environment is not your friend. You know, you have to understand in, in China, life is a struggle against the environment. Uh, it's a struggle against, you know, drought. It's a struggle against floods. It's a struggle. And so it, there's almost a, a concept of doing battle and surviving with the environment. And so one of the things that in, in, in Chinese culture that goes very, very deep is this idea of profiting from the environment as much as possible so it doesn't profit from you. And that's starting to change in many respects, but we see in Africa all over the lack of, 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 a, mind, of a mindset of you know, working with the farmers in such a way that they don't chop down that tree right away. They replant immediately. They are, you know, they're, they're, they're not clear-cutting everything, but doing it in segments and qu in, in quadrants so that as one's growing, another one can be harvested and whatnot. That's not happening. And what's yeah. happening is between the African corruption and between the Chinese short-term thinking on this, and, and there's no governance anywhere on the continent about these things, the people yeah. and the environment are getting screwed. 
Yeah, well, I, I would leave a little more hopeful notes to that. Yes, I think that, that there is a problem, but actually we are working with quite lots of Chinese researchers who are interested in this topic. And even the Chinese government, State Forest Administration, and some of the affiliated government-affiliated think tank researchers. Um, and they've developed, you might have read them about them, um, they've developed a few guidelines to promote more social socially responsible causal conducts for Chinese companies operating abroad, especially in the forestry sector. Yeah, but how are now they enforcing you, that? How yeah. is that just not... Yeah, exactly. That's That to me is BS because they put these code of conducts out, but is there any fine, any sanction, any any consequence? No. Well, so, no, so here's the situation, though. Um, I don't... I. Well, I think, first of all, it's a step. And I think it would be too much to expect that for a for China, a country that is trying to reform its environmental law, well, actually, its new environmental law is a hopeful sign, mm -hmm. and trying to come up with all these mechanisms while it's still sort of developing, right, developing country, I think it's too much to ask right now for them to jump into a very enforceable regulation like the EU timber regulation. But um, there is a value to this, I think, at least we've seen it from our work. The instrumental value would be that last, last year we organized a conference and some Mozambican officials came over. And back in Mozambique, after they've gone back to um, Mozambique, they brought these guidelines and they were working with um, some Chinese colleagues and they gathered around Chinese little traders and small enterprises in the forestry sector. And they talked to them about these guidelines in a way that to raise awareness of, say, so this is what your government is expecting of you. Here is the official stance from the government. And perhaps you can, you should start thinking further more than just um, what you are doing now, which is to pursue profit at all costs. And I wasn't there, but I've heard that the feedback was more than what you would have expected. Some of these small companies, you'd think these elusive traders who go into the forest deep down, would not care about it, but they did attend, and there was certain weight to this government-issued guidelines that the government is starting to look at it. I agree with you that enforcement is a is will be a problem. Um, State-owned enterprises generally are better, but the problems probably rest more with these smaller companies. So to reach out to them, this these guidelines, I do think it's one way of reaching out to them from the Chinese perspective. Yeah, I mean, you know, kind of. It also seems to me that um, that there is a certain amount of of profit that one can, well, like progress that one can get by you know, by appealing to very pragmatic uh, management ideas. Like, for example, look, if you you know, kind of, if you if you manage these forests responsibly, then you won't have. Um, um, landslides, for example, or you know, kind of that, that kind of, that kind of thing, where where there's a real kind of uh, like a, a cost-benefit analysis. I think the the real problem is is that yeah. is that both Africa and China, you know, kind of ne neither of those two have the traditional Western sentimentalization of the environment. You know, neither of those two cultures are particularly 
in love with animals. It's not traditional kind of pet having cultures necessarily. It's you know kind of it's 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 a it's a harder sell, particularly in Africa. I think to 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 sell people just simply on having to um, to preserve the environment simply because it's beautiful or valuable in inherently valuable. It's just that 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 argument frequently just doesn't work in Africa. I think. Yeah, but I also wouldn't buy that argument entirely for people who are trying to make their living out of these resources. I, yes. I, I mean, and also back in the days, um, the colonial periods, they, I think the West has gone through resource exploitation at all costs and have yes, realized yes. that the cost of that. And that's why I think the West have learned. And in a way, you know, even with China's air pollution, I, I remember reading an article about how the smog in London used to be worse than it is now in Beijing and London had learned from it. So 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 I'm not I'm not saying that China or African countries escape any responsibility, but I think one actually as a as a researcher who works on sustainable development, who works on environment and social issues, we often find the argument that okay preservation of environment is important doesn't work with these people you really need to think creatively about specific livelihoods options that would give them the income and sustainable um, sustainable financial resource so that they can look after some of the environmental issues out of that and yeah. Yeah. Well, Xiao Xue ends on a more positive note. I'm a little bit more skeptical and, and cynical, but Kobus, that's nothing new for for our show. But we are we, Xiao Xue. We're so happy that you uh, you are able to shine a little bit of sunshine and context. And and I think it's important. Just my final thought is that while the West is very very moral and high and mighty about environmental issues, let's not forget that the United States, in particular, represents five percent of the world's global population, uh, but generates almost twenty percent of its uh, of its pollution and has the highest uh, carbon footprint per capita in the world. So, you know, it's easy to talk about other people and not look at yourself. And I think that's a very context, as I think you've pointed out, Xiaoxue, is very, very important. So, uh, Xiaoxue Wang, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. One of the things that we do at the end of every show is that if people are interested in what you are, you're saying, what you're reading, what's the best way if people want to follow uh, either the work that you are doing specifically or what the IIED is doing? Yeah, um, so my email, xiaoxue.wen at iied.org. Um, please email me with any any questions, but also you can check out iied.org slash China. Our webpage is being updated right now, and we do have lots of good quality research, independent research on China's presence in Africa that, that's not being talked about in the media, and I think I find usually in the media it's more sensational, but we do try to take a more objective stance. So I think those will be useful. Uh, yeah, and also on illegal logging or timber issue, there was a brief, policy brief that came out from Center for International Forestry Research, C4, on China, Africa, and something that I also co-authored. I, that gives a fairly comparative view of all of these issues that we were talking about from an objective research fieldwork-based evidence perspective. Perspective. So you can also check that out. There are two articles in particular that I want to bring your attention to. That yeah. uh, that one is called "Rare Opportunity to Shape China's Impact on Global Forests." You can find that over on the IIED.org website, and also one that Xiao Xue wrote about the Chinese journalist who went to Africa: "China-Africa Relations: 
fresh perspectives from Chinese journalists on environmental challenges. Two great pieces that I re- really highly recommend. Kobus, if people want to follow what you're reading and writing these days, uh, what's the best way they can stay in touch? Um, I'm on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-E. And I'm also on our Facebook page. You'll see my name when I comment. Facebook at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Now over 180,000 strong. Xiaoxue, uh, we hope that you'll follow us on Facebook as well and participate in our discussions. Yep. We've got really these great discussions on all topics, uh, you know, covering the China-Africa engagement. Kobus and I are updating the page almost 18 hours a day from Africa oh, and wow. from Asia. So uh, it's, a, it's a level of nerdiness that has gone to really excessive <laughs> heights. But, uh, but we're very excited in I part like by, the, by the community that's there. Uh, also, yeah. we've made some tweaks to our homepage at ChinaAfrica.com. Uh, ChinaAfricaProject.com, that is. So if you want to listen to this podcast, just go right there. You can play it right off the homepage. Also, we put links every week to the different articles. So I'll put some links to Xiaoxue's work uh, on on that. And if you want to subscribe to the podcast, the best way to do it is over on iTunes. Uh, But you can follow us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and the BlackBerry Network in South Africa. So until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. (laughs) 